shouts of uh, joy, whether that's uh, heartache and pain and everything in between, uh, you're gonna, you can find it in the book of Psalms. Uh, King David had a lot of awesome stories in life, uh, from being a young shepherd who killed wild animals, a young t- teenager who took down the enemy's greatest fighter, Goliath. King David was a, a, a warrior who was praised by the people for his heroism. These are all prior to him being king. Uh, he was a faithful servant of the king who could bring peace through music. He was the king-to-be who survived a life-on-the-run existence in the mountains of Israel. There was a lot of highs. There was a lot of ups and downs. There was a lot of uh, great things that he was a part of. These and many other are some of the highlights of his life. I, I didn't want to take time to just list them all, but they're all in there if you read First and Second Samuel. There was also some troubled times for David. And where we're going today in Psalm 32, uh, it's a look-back account. It's a look-back account of how God took David from transgression, how God took David from transgression to trust. It's a look at how God took David from regret. You can see this in the first couple verses. He took David from regret to the very last verse of Psalm 32, you see him rejoicing. It's how God took him from sin to shouts of joy. In that same verse, the very last verse of Psalm 32, you see this idea that David is putting out shouts of joy. And to get down to the, uh, the real meat of the issue, God took David from adultery and murder to mercy. That's where he went. So we're going to talk about the range of emotions. Actually, Psalm 32, Psalm 51 is, are very, very similar, written from the same perspective, about the same time, and about the same issues. And uh, you're going to see this massive range, this big swing. The question uh, I probably ask is, so how does a man that's on top of the world sink to the bottom and still come back up again? How, how is that possible? How is somebody that's sunk so low, that's been on top, that had it all. He had it all. He was the king of the nation. There was nothing outside of his reach. There was nothing outside of, 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 of uh, what he could uh, go after and lead the nation into and conquering these other nations as God had told him to do. There was nothing. Like he had it all. And he had God's favor, which is, we, I love this quote, we talk about it often. We have an unfair advantage as believers in Christ. As God followers, you have an unfair advantage, as it were, in life. If you're in relationship with Christ, have the indwelling Holy Spirit, it's an unfair advantage to anybody that doesn't really, but do we live that way? And so how does somebody that has it all, somebody that's on the top, sink to the very bottom, how, how do they get from there back up? That's the question I wanted to start with. To understand forgiveness, we must first understand the gravity of all that's lost. I highlighted that in my notes. Maybe it's up on the screen. It would be a great thing to write down. To really understand forgiveness... We must first understand the gravity of all that's lost. The gospel account really starts not with just Jesus coming. Think about it. Think about it logically with me. Think about it in the context of, it's not that it's not about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Don't hear the wrong thing. But it doesn't just start with the issues of sin. Sin created loss. So what was lost? What was lost? To understand forgiveness, we first must understand all of what is lost. Perfect relationship between God and man. That's what was lost. Then insert broken and willful sin, Adam and Eve, Genesis 3. Then from man's perspective, you have this long wait for the person that was going to make it right. 
for Jesus, a long wait for Jesus, the one that did this, the one that conquered the cure, the curse, and is able to restore actually what's lost. He conquered sin and death for sure, but it's not just, it's not, don't just leave it hanging there. Christ came to conquer sin and death and restore what was lost. And what was lost was that relationship, was the identity that mankind is to have in God. That's what was lost. We can't forget that. The sweetness of forgiveness is to understand best by understanding the truth. As the gospel say, what was lost is now found. What was lost is now found. Now, to kick this thing off a little bit, rather than turning straight to Psalm two, 32, we're actually going to dive into the context uh, of the storyline of Psalm 32, and that's actually 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, I would say that we're probably all fairly familiar with the account of David and Bathsheba and their sin of adultery. Uh, here's a few highlights of how David fell, a few insertions of uh, idea here. Uh, I'm sure if you grew up in the church, you've heard probably dozens and dozens of sermons on 2 Samuel 11. So I, I only want to use it to set up Psalm 32. But I do want to say a couple of things while we're there. Uh, <clears throat> I'll leave the rest for a sermon for another time. 2 Samuel chapter 11 says, It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbanah. But David remained at Jerusalem. David remained in Jerusalem. Uh, <clears throat> strike against David in this situation is he kicked back and he got this idea is that apathetic leadership is okay. I don't have to go. Joab's got this covered. No problem. I'm just going to hang back. It's no problem. Uh, he was apathetic in his leadership. He didn't take it serious. He wasn't engaged. His role and responsibility as king of Israel was to be out there at the battle, leading his men, leading his men to conquer uh, 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 people and, 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 and areas and lands that God had commanded him. That was the role. That was the responsibility. And David's like, I'll just stay here. I'm good. You guys got it handled. Right? You guys are packing all the big heat. You guys can just take care of it. No. David wasn't where he should have been. He wasn't leading and fighting for Israel. It's a great challenge for us men as we lead our marriages as we lead our homes, lead our families. Don't be apathetic in leadership. Be attentive. Verse 2, we see uh, that apathy turns to boredom. And this happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Uh, David was bored. You don't get up and wander around at night, fellas. We all know this is true. You don't do that because you've just worked a hard day. You don't do that because you've been out in battle. You don't do that because you've been leading and taking your leadership serious. No, we get restless, frankly, because we're bored. Because we're not working hard. We're created to work. We're created to lead. And David was bored, and that boredom put him in a position of compromise. David's lack of diligent leadership was compounded when he was alone, without accountability. Had he been on the battlefield, <clears throat> he would have had all of the men in his life holding him accountable uh, in a good way. And he's they, because he would have been leading the way he was intended to be, the way it was intended to be. Verse 3 and 4, we see a pursuit, the compromise and adultery. David's lack of restraint, he goes... Uh, was it say verse 3 so David sent and inquired about the woman bad move David don't do that she's not your wife first of all you should have 
well, we could go all the way back and say you're not in the right spot, you're bored, and now you're making bad choices that are going to take you down a bad road. So he pursues her. He compromises. They compromise. They commit adultery together. It's not just David. Bathsheba's in this thing too. And she's going to suffer the consequences of this sin as much as he is. We'll get to that in a little bit. But David's lack of restraint and godly accountability then opened the door to all the flesh would have, all the flesh wanted. Verse 5 through 26 then is the account where it goes from bad to worse. As if adultery isn't bad enough, let's stack murder up on top of it, see what happens. Like, oh, this sounds like a good idea. Bad idea, David, not a good idea. And when we get to 32, see, see, when we get to Psalm 32, we're going to see the lament. We're going to see the anguish, and we're going to see his pain really come out. We don't see it so much. There's bits and pieces in in, uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 where we see it. But we don't see it in real time. We'll see that in Psalm 32. David's fall into sin had no bottom. His initial fall into sin didn't have a bottom. The further you go, the greater the consequences. The last second, excuse me, the last sentence of 2 Samuel 11 says this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There's God's perspective in the matter. God just gets right to the point of it. Hey, hey, what you've done, I'm not happy about it. I'm not happy about it. And 2 Samuel 12 then continues with the prophet Nathan confronting David about his sin. Verses 11 through 15 says this. 11 through 15 of chapter 12. Thus saith the Lord, Nathan speaking. Behold, I will rise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before you your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it in sec- you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all of Israel before the sun so David said to Nathan I've sinned against the Lord and Nathan said to David the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die however because <clears throat> by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, to blaspheme the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Four consequences of David's sin. He had a troubled home. You can go on and read uh, the rest of those accounts. Uh, he always had trouble in home, at the home. Um, there was uprisings. His own sons rose up against him. The whole nine yards. He always had trouble at home. If we don't think, men, that our apathetic leadership is really going to matter, it's going to matter down the road at home. It's going to matter at home. Keep that in mind. What you've done in secret, the second consequence for David is what you've done in secret will be done to you in public. That's painful. The thing that you've done, the thing that you thought you could get away with because you were powerful, because you were the king of the nation, the thing that you kind of, you know, pulled all of the strings to make happen and and keep behind closed doors and, and tried to, you know, bury this whole thing from the adultery to the coming child and getting rid of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, all of that that you tried to pull off in secret, God says is going to happen to you in an exposed way. Painful. Heavy consequences. Not only those two things, but David's enemies will be bolstered. They were going to be, uh, they were going to use this in a way to come against Israel. And the fourth and probably the most painful one, definitely the one that Second Samuel goes on to talk about the most, at least right after this, was this uh, baby wasn't going to make it. Uh, painful consequences. For David's sin. But the most important part of the whole thing of chapter 12 is really David's response in verse 13. Because David begins to agree with God about his sin. 
He said, hey, hey, I, I've sinned here. I'm in the wrong. You know, when Nathan confronted him, he got all fired up because Nathan came to him and he spoke to him in a parable. You guys remember the story? He said, hey, you know, say a guy has, you know, tons of, you know, uh, herds and, and tons of cattle and there's this one guy that just has one and somebody comes and steals that one rather, you know, and David got all fired up and then Nathan says, well, that's you. Like you went and took somebody's one, took them for yourself. You know, that whole started the process of David opening his eyes. And one thing you see about this is that uh, agreeing with God about your sin is also agreeing that the consequences of our sin are something that needs to be lived out. We, we do all we can do to get away from the consequences when we sin. We, we try to, you know, make excuses. We try to blame shift. Uh, we try to run from it. We try to hide. We try to put it off of somebody else's issue. We say the devil made me do it. We, we put the blame anywhere that we can get away with rather than on saying, hey, these consequences are natural to my situation. It's part of what God is doing to, to uh, discipline me and to correct me. That's the right attitude. That's David saying, hey, I've sinned against the Lord. Whatever I got coming, I got coming. Now there's a, a, an extra component. There's something missing in 2 Samuel that you don't see. It's not there. And that's a rescue of somebody else trying to come in and mitigate those consequences in David's life. It's not there, and it's not there for a reason. God's going to show mercy and grace to David. Definitely is going to forgive David. But the consequences stay. And as, as Christ followers, when we try to rush in and get in the middle of that process, let's be real clear about this. We're stepping in between God's discipline and the person that is going to receive that discipline. And it's so hard, and it's so painful, and we don't like to see the people that are around us hurt. We don't like to see that happen. This is why we have to have good, solid, biblical discernment to know the difference, know what's going on, and there's a time to step in, there's a time not to. Now, all of that is just introduction. And I'm going to move really fast through Psalm 32. So if your chair has a seat belt, you might want to snap it closed. I've noticed that um, I have a tendency, when I get up here and start preaching, I lose all track of time. Which is either a good thing or a bad thing, depending upon what side of this pulpit you're on. I have this uh, crazy notion that if you lose track of time, if you're outside of time and space like God is, you're probably in a pretty good spot, right? That's how weird my brain works. All right, Psalm 32, drink of water, let's go. Psalm 32, flip there in your Bible. I'm sure Haley will have it up on the screen. And we're going to look at Psalm 32 with all of Second Samuel 11 and 12 in the back of our minds for context. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Now, you've got to remember, Psalm 32 is David thinking back, Remembering all that's happened, of course, you know, there's still the consequences. Like, there's still, you know, he's got, you know, rebellious children, the whole nine yards, all that goes with all that. So there's still, there's still things that remind him as he thinks back as he's writing this psalm. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. David spoke of the great blessing that there is for the man or the woman who knows the forgiveness of God that his sin is no longer exposed, that it's rather than being exposed, his sin is covered. His sin is covered. When they would, in the Old Testament, and the Old Covenant, they would bring a, 
you know, a perfect animal up for sacrifice. Say it was a lamb, spotless. Uh, and, and they would pray and they would put their hands, they would cover, they would cover that lamb's head, they would pray, and they would pray that <clears throat> their sins then would be, would be put on, as it were, that lamb. That lamb then was put up on an altar, and it, it would be fascinating to go and see, if we could go back in time and see in the Old Testament days, at the altar, the, uh, the massive flow of blood from the thousands and thousands and thousands of animals that were sacrificed the way that God had told Israel to sacrifice them because it's blood, it's blood. There's no forgiveness without the blood. So that was put on that animal, slit the throat, represented the covering or the taking of their sins. David had a great opportunity to know the blessedness of his, in his own life. This great man of God, a, a man after God's own heart as he's called, nevertheless had some significant seasons of sin. And what may have been called uh, in modern day, or leastwise when I was growing up, they would call him a backslider. David had some times where he slid backwards in his faith. Sometimes where he had some spiritual decline instead of incline. There's actually kind of two seasons. There's this one that we read about in 2 Samuel 11. There's also this time that he spent at Ziglag, uh, 1 Samuel chapters 27, 29, and 30, uh, was not some of David's best days. Regardless, after both occasions, David came. David came the same way. He came in confession and repentance to receive forgiveness. Blessed is a man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That's kind of that same idea with the lamb. David spoke of this. He spoke of real forgiveness, real forgiveness, <clears throat> and not forgiveness because it was something that he did. It was real forgiveness because it was a declaration by God. It was a declaration by God, not merely the quieting of a noisy conscience or an imagined peace which is, uh, <clears throat> can be really tricky. It can be really tricky. It's not merely, I wrote this in my notes, it's not merely the quieting of a noisy conscience or an imagined peace with God. Here's what I'm talking about. Sometimes when, when we've been so blind or we've been just caught up in our own sin and, and it finally comes out, it's just a relief to get that sin out there. So I've sinned. I'm... I, I'm asking for your forgiveness. It's just a release. And we think, we think that release, because now our secret's out, we think that that release, because what, that, what does that release do? It makes us feel good, doesn't it? Doesn't it, be, doesn't it feel good to finally, in the midst of a tough time, doesn't it feel good to tell the truth? So we got that good feeling. We got that good feeling. And now that noisy conscience... The Holy Spirit's not grinding on us about what's going on, so it just feels good. And it should feel good, but it should be coupled with true repentance. See, real forgiveness is a declaration by God, not just the quieting of a noisy conscience, or this, an imagined peace with God. An imagined peace with God. I'm good with God. I'm good with God. Really? You're good with God? I'm, 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 I'm okay. Me and God are good. We're tight. How's your relationship with everybody else? Because that's a reflection of how good you are actually with God. Right? It's not just an imagined peace with God. There's a reality to it that is undeniable. I'll get into that in just a minute. So footnote that idea also. Uh, there was a standing with God declared and given that's not earned. Let's talk about that in just a second. In verses 1 and 2, David used three words to describe his sin. He called it transgression. The idea be behind transgression is crossing the line or defying authority. The idea behind sin, that's the second word, is the falling short or missing the mark. It's an archery term. It means that uh, <clears throat> it's what I would do if we had a competition, an archery competition. Let's just, I, who could I randomly pick? Maybe Matt to shoot, and then I would shoot. And um, don't stand down range. I'll guarantee you when I'm pulling that thing back, you don't know where it's going and neither do I. I'm probably not going to hit it. And, uh, and I've seen this guy pop balloons from a long ways away. 
So I know he's going to hit it. Right? I know he's going to hit it. Sin is a, is a term that's used that way. It's falling short or missing the mark. Then the idea behind iniquity that David uses here in verses 1 and 2 is this idea. It's the idea of crookedness or a distortion. A crookedness or a distortion. Something's broke. Something's bent. It, it, it's, it's, it's out of whack. I do a lot of work out in the shop. Of course, most of you know that we have a farm and we have a big shop there where we're repairing stuff. And <clears throat> the hardest thing for me to work on is um, a piece of pipe that's bent. You might as well just cut it in two and start over. Because straightening out a, a bent piece of metal pipe, the way that they bent, it's almost impossible to get it back to round. I wouldn't say it's completely impossible. I'm sure there's people that are way smarter and skilled than I am. But the idea of crookedness and distortion, that's the idea of iniquity. David uses three terms also to describe what God does then to deal with our sin. He uses the idea behind forgiveness as the lifting of the burden or the debt. The idea behind covered is, is that of the sacrificial blood covering sin. Jesus' blood covering our sin. And the idea behind do not impute. Uh, do you know where that idea comes? The, 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 the history behind or the, the thought behind this idea. Do not impute. It's a bookkeeping term. It means don't, it's not written down on our behalf. It's not on the ledger. It doesn't count against us as a person. Then at the end of verse 2, this idea of in whose spirit there is no deceit, as David said, in whose spirit there is no deceit. The prior life of sin and double living was over for David. The forgiven life needs no more deceit to cover up its ways. Rather, rather, here's what it looks like, the forgiven, the repentant life. This is what it looks like. This is how, if it's you, this is how, you, these are some ideas that you're going to know that you're in the sweet spot. You're going to know that it's genuine and true, and here's what it is. A person that's repented and is forgiven for their sins is transparent. They're transparent. They're not proud of what they've done. Don't, don't get, they're not haughty about it or, or brag about it, but they are transparent. They're real in that way. They're honest about it. There's honesty involved. There's openness. You know, I've, I'm a firm believer that our biggest struggles in life, God intends as He, as he uh, forgives us, as we come to Him, as we receive His forgiveness, as He transforms our lives, changes our identity, uh, gives us a, a, a new lease on life, as it were, uh, fills us with the Holy Spirit, imparts His spiritual gift, we're launched into the body in that way, and then out we go. I think that God intends for our biggest struggle, our biggest issues in life, to then be turned around and allow Him to use it in ministry, to encourage other people that are maybe going through the same or similar things. That, that God intends to use for you and for me the things that were meant for evil, that He'll use them for good. Amen? We all get that? Let me tell you how you can't get there. You can't get there if you never open up with people about it. And so people that live a repentant life, a, a forgiven life, they're open, but not haughty and bragging about it, but they're open about it. They understand that God has a purpose in all of this. They're willing to share and they're willing to be a part of the body and minister to people around them. It's a beautiful thing to watch happen. And, of course, there's this, the opposite of deceit. In whose spirit there is no deceit is somebody who lives with full truthfulness. Full truthfulness. They also live in humility. It's not a proud thing. It's not bragging about my sin or even, you know... Uh, Kind of the old, you know, I was such a sinner, and, you know, and, and trying to whip it up some which way that way. That's not it, you know. And somehow it, uh, you know, because there's a greater testimony, somehow there's, you know, more to it. Uh, you know, what does, Tim, what does Tim Hawkins say? 
you know, talking about people's conversion. Well, I wish I was hooked on crack, you know. He's joking about it, of course. But somehow we get in our minds that this idea that the lower we are, you know, like the worse off and, and all of that, somehow can add to uh, and, and, and infuse a little extra something into God's story. That's not it at all. No, that's false humility. True humility is saying, hey, this is my story. And if I can help you in any way, if I can encourage you in any way, if I can you know, come alongside and be an aid in any way, then I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to do that because uh, this is what's happened to me. I've been forgiven. I've been healed. I've been set back upright by the God of the universe, by the one that created me. And, and I know, and I know then, that then nothing can touch me. Nothing can harm me when I'm in Christ. We have an unfair advantage that way. But that's what a repentant life looks like. No deceit. John the Baptist actually put it this way in Matthew 3, 8. I love this verse. I've actually quoted it a fair times lately, a fair amount of times. And that's this idea. He just simply says, uh, and he's in a big confrontation with the Pharisees, who he calls a brood of vipers, who warned you about the coming wrath. He tells them this. He says, uh, repent, therefore bear fruit worthy of repentance. He said, all right, you're good with God. You have a repentant lifestyle. If it's genuine, guess what's going to happen? Guess what's going to happen? And John talks about this as well. You're going to bear fruit. You're going to bear fruit. That's just the natural outflow of a relationship with God. You're just going to bear fruit. So therefore, he says, just go bear fruit. You know? And if there's any question of whether it's genuine or not, it's not going to be according to what you say. It's going to be according to the result of your life. And it's going to be evident for everybody, right? It's going to be ever evident for everybody. You come to our yard later this summer, guess what you're going to see on the apple trees? Well, if we're having a picnic and there's a bunch of little kids, you're going to see a bunch of little kids up in a fort in the apple tree. But beyond that, you're going to see apples on the apple tree. It's evident for everybody, right? So th- just go bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let that be evident. Let your repentance be evident. True repentance bears spiritual fruit that is genuine, undeniable, and it's out there for everybody to see. Then David thinks back, verse 3 and 4, he thinks back to what it was like before he had repented of his sins. So these next two verses are kind of that looking back of, uh, oh yeah, I remember what that was like. Uh, It was horrible. He says this, he says, When I kept silent, my, gr- my bones grew old. Through my groaning all days long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Uh, that's a bad look. He's looking back now with a, uh, a bit of regret. He's looking back in all honesty and saying this, he says, you know, before I was willing, when I was still in de- deceiving people, when I was still hiding my sin, when I was still trying to cover it up, when I had this, you got to realize, Second uh, Samuel chapter eleven and twelve, they stretched out. This all didn't happen in like four days' time. There was a baby on the way. Men were out for battle. They went out in the spring, came back in the late fall. So this stretched out over months, months and months. And he kept hiding the sin and hiding the sin and hiding the sin. He kept silent, don't want anybody to know, try to make it go away, actually take out one of his best dudes, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, right? You look, look read, read further into Second uh, Samuel. Uriah had a thousand times the integrity that King David did in the same era. He was doing it all right. And he sacrificed for his wife, he sacrificed his life, for the truth. That's how I read it. He gave it up because he did what was right, even though it meant his own life. I can't fathom the picture on the battlefield. Everybody else going backwards, he's like, <laughs> goner. So he did it right. David, in the meantime, the guy that's supposed to be out leading the troops, is back home in sin, covering it up, orchestrating all these events, 
And he's not saying a word. He says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old. That's what happens. We age fast in sin. Through my groaning all day long. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. He's looking back. He's thinking back about that time. I'm sure with a lot of regret. And he's saying to the Lord, hey, hey, hey. Because I was in sin, your hand just kept pressing down and pressing down. I just kept feeling it and feeling it and feeling it. His hand, God's hand is heavy on his people when they hide their sin. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Uh, We're going through a bit of a drought right now, right here. I don't know. Can you think of a time when you've ever seen it this dry, Ed? Me either. In fact, uh, thank you for reminding us, Donna, to be praying about it. Like, this is a real thing. If you make your living out of the ground, like a few of us do, uh, this is an issue, a real big issue, if we don't get some rain. And David is using that same picture, like his vitality was, was dried up. His energy was dried up like the end of summer, bone dry. His spiritual life, like a drought. His relational life, like a drought. His leadership life over the nation of Israel and his own family was all dried up. It was tough. It was hard to bear. I think it was probably what drove him to agree with Nathan quickly in the matter. This is my own assessment. Sin not only, <clears throat> oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. No, I'm not. Sin not only spir- is spiritually painful, but it's emotionally and physically painful as well. In our sin, it just seems like everything is against us and our lives are parched. By contrast, by contrast, though, David goes on to sing about all the benefits of God's forgiveness. So he gives us a small window of what it was like before. Now he's going to say, Here's the benefits of, of, of God, what you've given me. Here's why I'm singing out in shouts of praise and glory to you. This is what you've done for me. Nothing that I've earned, he says in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and, <clears throat> and my iniquity I've not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. That's a throwback to Second Samuel. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah, which... Say law if you're curious. That means think about it, meditate, contemplate it. Verse 6, for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. And in a time when you may be found, everybody will pray to you in a time you may be found. Surely in a a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. And you shall surround me with the songs of deliverance. Selah. Five blessings there of God's forgiveness. Five things that are restored. Five things that, that, uh, that God does for us as we enter into forgiveness in a repentant life. Really, that's what it's about. We're called to live a repentant lifestyle. Can I just put it out there that way? We're called to live a repentant lifestyle. It's not something that just you think about that happened, you know, 15, 20 years ago when I was, you know, in sixth grade in Awana. I repented and then that's that. We're called to live a repentant lifestyle that reflects the fact that God has forgiven us day in and day out. So five blessings then of God's forgiveness for David and I think really for any God follower, for any Christian says here in verse 6, our prayer life is restored. Five blessings. Man, what a blessing to have your prayer life restored. That when you're in sin and other places in the Bible, it talks about, you know, whoa, your, your, your sins are hindered, you know. Your sins are hindered because there's, there's uh, bad relationships going on. Men, that's specifically to you and, and for me, right? That if our relationship with our wife is not right, uh, God says, I'm not listening to you. Go away, fix it, make it right. But when our prayer life is restored, man, what a blessing. Not only is our prayer life restored, is that we have protection from danger, verse 6. Protection from danger, verse 6. 
For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Here it is. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. There's protection there. There's protection from danger. We have God's protection. The idea of having a place to hide out. You are my hiding place, he says in verse 7. You shall preserve me from trouble, and you shall surround me with songs of deliverance. So we have our prayer life restored. We have protection from deep waters. We have a place to hide. We have God's preservation in our lives, his protection and his preservation. And we're surrounded with the message of God's deliverance. What does that sound like? I'll tell you what it sounds like for me. Is that when I know I'm in in the wrong, I don't want to listen to worship music. When I know that I'm in the wrong, I don't want to I don't want to turn on KMBI or I don't necessarily I listen to lots of podcasts because I drive a lot, uh, farming. So I listen to lots of podcasts. I don't want to listen to that. I don't want that influence. No, 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 no. A repentant life is one that then appreciates and longs for those things. And it's a reality then that we're surrounded by and we desire to be surrounded by this message of deliverance. You've been saved. You've been delivered. Why not have every communication or as much as you can possibly have surround you then with a good message rather than a bunch of garbage coming from the culture? You tell me. But we're all prone to it. I know I am. Right? I know that when I'm in a funk, I mean, I'd rather listen to kind of anything else. Uh... It was a big thing for me. Music was a huge thing. I remember specifically the night that I took a stand against probably a couple thousand dollars worth of music that I had in my own home. Living up in Summit Valley and I decided this isn't God honoring. Uh, Not by any stretch of the imagination is it God honoring. So I sat there and just flipped them into the fire all evening long. I wanted to be surrounded with this concept, the fact that God had, and it was all fresh to me, it was all fresh within like two weeks. So God's deliverance of me was, was, was hot in my mind. It was burning in my mind and in my heart. And I wanted, I didn't want that influence, I wanted God's influence, and that was just one aspect of it. Right? It was, a, it was an awesome event. David's saying kind of the same thing. You surround me, God. You surround me with the message of your deliverance. You keep reminding me in all these different ways. You're reminding me. And when we live perpetually in unforgiveness, the opposites of these five things are also true. So these things are true of what God does in our lives They're true of his nature. They're true of his redemptive story that he's writing in our lives and and how he affects us and, and guides us and shapes us and turns us into his people. So that's all the upside, but I I will also tell you I believe that the opposite is also true. That without forgiveness, without repentance, um, I don't see these five blessings playing out really well. David closes out by speaking prophetically from God's perspective in verses 8 through 11. He's laying out kind of from God's perspective a few things of of what God's encouragement is then for him and for really anybody that would read this and be trusting in him. Verse 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the ways you should go. God speaking. I will guide you with my eye. Verse 9, do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near to you. David's saying from God's perspective, What God's goal is, is for us to be easily moved and directed by Him. I will guide you with my eye. Um, If I'm getting my story correct, when my parents got married, my mom's flower girl, who happens to be Judy, that owns Judy's Java, 
just a little bit of a thing, and uh, scared to death to come up the aisle. But her dad stood there. Am I right? He led her up the aisle with his eyes. She was so tuned into her father. She was so tuned in. Now, maybe a little bit of fear was involved. I don't know. I have to ask her that story. But the reality was is that she was watching what dad was doing, and she knew where to go according to where his eyes went. Does that define our relationship with God? It ought to. It ought to have a huge impact. The opposite of that, the opposite of that is to shove an iron rod in our mouths and leather straps on each side of our head, is the picture, and to be forced around like a horse or a mule. I will give you the liberty that you make up your own mind for you if you have a tendency to be a horse or a mule. I'll give you that liberty. You choose. I know which one I am. I know which one I can be when I'm not being led by God's eye. He leaves this other aspect in here that it's the one reason why um, I loved riding horses as a kid. We always had a couple horses as a kid. Um, I loved to actually hunt off a horse. Uh, although I will tell you, uh, I had a good bead on a nice four-point buck right over the top of my horse's head with a .30-06. I had it off fire, on safety, and I'm thinking, man, this is my only chance to whack this deer. Because on, when you're on a horse, I mean, you can just see everything in the woods. They're not spooked. And I thought, at the last second, I thought, I don't think this is going to end well. I, I, I might kill the deer. There's, there's a small possibility of that. But uh, I might get killed in the process. And so it didn't happen. But uh, the reason why horses were always a frustration, and here it is in the Bible, as God's speaking through David, and he says, uh, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they not come near to you. The worst thing about owning a horse is what? Catching them. Oh, them things run all over the place. Right? They're always at the far end of the pasture. You can't, you, they're just a pain. They're always running from you. Sometimes they're running with you. When, um, oh, how old was I? Maybe 17, you guys bought the place next door. My parents had bought the nine acres next door to our 90 acres up in Summit Valley. And the people that lived there, they abandoned uh, this uh, Shetland pony and her colt. And they left in the middle of the winter. Um, those two horses survived only because of Dad taking mercy on them and throwing them a little hay. But that next spring, I decided, <clears throat> you know, I'm 17, pretty tough. I think I'll try to break them things. And uh, more than once did I, was I on the back end of a rope getting drug across the pasture. They don't like it. It's not easy. It's not natural for them to come up and say, yeah, put a piece of metal in my mouth. Let's go for a ride. They don't come near to you. The Bible says it right there. All right, verse 10. Many sorrows shall be on the wicked, God says, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright of heart. The reality in life is, is that tough times are going to surround those that engage in sinful activity. By contrast, though, he who trusts in the Lord will be surrounded by mercy. Don't, we, don't, don't, don't you want to be surrounded by mercy? Don't you want your neighbors? Don't you want the people that, that you know that are outside of these walls? This is just a, a kickstart for the week. So you're going to see all kinds of people this week. You're going you're gonna to deal with all kinds of people. You're, you're going to have all of these intersections. You're either going to be working with them in school or working with them in the marketplace or, or working with them, you know, see them, you know, at the grocery store or whatever, wherever you cross paths with people. Don't you want them to be surrounded by God's mercy as well? 
That's why the message of the cross, that's why the, the message of the gospel is so vital that it's a part of who we are. A uh, complete plug for Leo Chen and his shirts that he's been so diligently getting out there in the community that says only Jesus matters. You want a conversation piece where you can talk about God's mercy and forgiveness? Grab one of those shirts. Get online and order them up. Wear them not only proudly, not like proudful in your own self and, and in, in who you are, but proud that you can call yourself a, a child of the king. That you can call yourself one of God's children. God's promise is to lead us and guide us in a relationship where we know him so well that even a glance is enough to move us from place to place. And those who trust in the Lord are surrounded then by his mercy. And that mercy is expressed then through rejoicing. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. It, it's, it's fine. Cut her loose. Cut it loose. That's what God's saying. Cut it loose. Why not let, like, <clears throat> I've been to Seahawks games, packed stadium, not an empty seat. You couldn't even hear yourself think. People were screaming and yelling. We were screaming and yelling. We walk, I walked away from there so hoarse. And the thought occurred to me, <clears throat> do we walk away from church that way? <laughs> With this much excitement, this much buzz, this much energy. God's saying His mercy is an awesome, awesome thing that's well worth you getting riled up in a good way for. It's well worth you getting excited for. It's well worth, uh, 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 it's a natural outflow of who he is in our lives. So shouts of joy, awesome. Let her loose. Cut it loose. It's, a, it's nothing to be shameful about. It's nothing to be shy about. I love worship in that sense and, and seeing people, you know, singing out loud and proud to the Lord. Lifting up their voices in, in, in one accord to the Lord. And getting them hands up. Too much we, we have a cultural understanding that, that anything religious has to be quiet and somber. Mm, you know that type of number? That's not what the Bible says. Be excited about who God is. Be excited about what He's done in our lives. I'm fired up about it. And I'm going to stop right here early. I don't know if it's early. Maybe I'm on time. And I'm going to turn it over to David Watland to come and do communion. The worship team can come on up. and We'll prepare for our hearts for communion. I encourage you to pour back over God's Word. Look into 2 Samuel. Look into Psalms. Great connection for Psalms 32 is Psalms 51. The parallel read. Be excited about what God's done and enjoy His forgiveness. And if you're here and you're not walking in God's forgiveness, if that's not a part of your life, it's not, if it's not something that is, that is active in, in your life and you know, you know inside of yourself that you're not in God's will because you're not in His family, today's your day. Today's the day to consider who Christ is. Today's the day to receive his forgiveness. It's absolutely free. Trust in him. Trust that Christ is exactly who he says he is. Go ahead, David.